0: Blog Talk Radio Today is Wednesday, January the 28th, 2015, and as always, I'm your host, John Hanson. Now, over the coming weeks, and we'll be doing this probably beyond this point, I'm doing a series of what you could call informal, off-the-cuff interviews with a number of executives and experts from various areas of the world, and I'm focusing on what I consider to be the three most important questions for our industry in 2015. Now, I didn't come up with these questions in a vacuum, uh, talking with myself, but more over the past year, looking at some of the interviews I've done, some of the discussions and the feedback and the response from you, the listeners and readers, to the Procurement Insights blog, this, these three questions are centered around themes or topics that, that, that appear to be the most important to you, what matters the most to you. And so by bringing in these, these uh, experts and these, these industry thought leaders, the hope is to shed some light on the different variables out there that we're dealing with within the context of of, of these three uh, important or specific areas. And joining me today to carry on the discussion is Kate Vitasek, who is one of our industry's top experts and author of five books, including Vested and Getting to We, and Phil Coglin, who is the president, Global Geographies and Operations for Expeditors International. Now, before I bring both Kate and Phil on, I want to remind everybody that we are broadcasting live over the virtual airways of the Blog Talk Radio Network through our studios in New York City. However, if you can't join us live, that's not going to be a problem because the entire broadcast is being recorded. And that means, listeners, you can tune in at your convenience on an on-demand basis. And this is just one of the great, great features of Internet Radio, and in particular, Blog Talk Radio. Now, seeing that time is short, we've allocated 30 minutes for discussion. Without further delay, I'd like to welcome to the show both Kate Vitasek and Phil Coughlin. Welcome. How are you today?
1: Great, John. Thank you for having me. Well, yeah, you know,
0: and I understand uh, that... To... I'm sorry, Kate. Hi.
2: Good, good. Glad to be on again. Always nice to be on your show.
0: Well, you know, and and, and, and it was actually great to finally meet you in person in Virginia and uh, see that we share similar uh, fashion coordination tastes, eh? I think everyone missed the memo on that one. Anyway, nonetheless, it's great to have you back, Kate and Phil. And, you know, one of the things that I liked about our discussion in the virtual green room is the uh, fact that, we, you know, we can really get into it in this sort of informal setting. And and one of the three questions we're going to focus on, starting with uh, Robert Hanfield's and Gerald Chick's assessment in his recent book, Procurement's Value Proposition, that there is a definitive and definite gap between the old purchasing uh, or buyer Uh, professional and the new procurement professional and I use those two words purchasing and procurement uh, Mm -hmm. with deliberate intent but more so, in the content of what we we're talking about, one of the issues that you raise in terms of of, of the t and c s or the approach to supplier relationships that is 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 derailing a lot of the initiatives and the the outcomes that people are hoping to achieve and so maybe just to pick up on that conversation, Phil, when you talk about t and c 's and having a negative impact on 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 suppliers and vendors, can you elaborate a little bit more? I know you mentioned apple and 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 uh, such in terms Terms of lopsided deals, but why is this important in terms of an issue we have to address, and in terms of the generational divide that Hanfield referred to? I mean, is change on the horizon?
1: Yeah, John. Well, I guess I briefly to touch on it, what's what's sort of transpired over the last several years in logistics space is the terms and conditions have become more and more aggressive. We've moved away from industry standard and liability regimes around the world, like Warsaw Convention and Montreal Protocol. We've gone to sort of each customer, shipper, consignee, crafting their own terms and conditions. And those terms and conditions have extended payment terms out to a significant amount of time, they've shifted the risk that's inherent with a shipper or a consignee over to the the carrier or the service provider, and they've just gradually expanded the amount of exposure, liability, and risk, while simultaneously through the procurement organization driving pricing down to somewhat of a commodity-type process. So what that has really done is it's begun to push away sort of the more strategic uh, and thought and, and thought leaders and really it's become much more of a transactional uh, how do I manage this and avoid the risk type relationship rather than sort of this collaborative uh, strategic partnership it's become much more of a commodity uh, shifting of risk type relationship which is not really helpful considering some of the supply chain challenges and things that most shippers want to want to take on you know
0: Okay. Now I have to interrupt here, Phil, because, Caden, we talked about this, the, the Minnesota Bridge Rebuilding Project. I mean, you had mentioned when we talked in, in, in November that the risk element to which Phil has just referred was dealt with on, a, on, on, on an equitable basis, or maybe I should use the word a conciliatory basis that took into consideration all stakeholders. I mean, that project was successful. Uh, why is that not the same approach across the board?
2: Well, I think you have to look at the fact that buyers inherently have power, right? And so go back to, you know, rewind to 1983 uh, with Peter Croujic and his, you know, at the time pioneering two-by-two Croujic two model that said, know we're going to classify and segment our spend so if I look at a category such as um, what Phil does with with freight and and, um, expediting you know worldwide um, supply chains you know a lot of times people take those categories and they go oh you know that's just a shipment that's just point A to point B or that's just facilities and real estate you know no big deal it's just cleaning and we tend to put those in non-critical buckets or a bucket called leverage so even though, you know, we we may have these strategic suppliers, I think what we do is we, we try to, as Phil said, over-commoditize because buyers naturally have power. You know, you've heard the golden rule, those who have the gold rule, and Peter Kraljic taught us to leverage. You know, Michael Porter taught us if you don't have power, do what you can to shift the power to your, you know, what you're doing. So instead of having a a deal around how to reduce your overall supply chain management cost, it's how do you change the price from, you know, of of point A to point B freight, and I'm going to drive that down to something that's very standard. I'm going to pit the suppliers against each other so I can get the best price. And oh, by the way, the lawyers are really smart. If the suppliers come back and fight back about price, we can hit a lower price by shifting T's and C's. In our favor, right? Okay, okay, but
0: you know what, and I've got to say this, though, and you remember we're talking in the context of of the, the, the Hanfield Divide. I mean, isn't this a characteristic of the old buyer mentality that you're referring to? And will this? And I'll go back to Phil and then come back to you, uh, Kate, uh, after I hear him Phil on this. But is this something, Phil, that will jump that chasm that Hanfield talks about to this new generation of, of, of procurement professionals who have chosen to be in the profession, who are part of this strategic renaissance? I guess you could call it strategic renaissance where we recognize now that it isn't just getting the best price. There's, there's strategic elements to it. And I'll talk about an automotive industry study shortly. But I mean, is, is this is 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 this where it ends, or is this going to jump the chasm? And even with the insights and the perspective of the the next generation, we're uh, going to fall into the same traps.
1: Yeah, John, I would say that that there are some exceptions out there, but they they are few and far between. And and if there is a strategic renaissance going on in in my world, it's at the very beginning uh, stages. Uh, there's, there's clearly a a well entrenched sort of uh philosophical approach to procurement in my industry which is more tilted towards negotiations being a competitive almost a blood sport if you will where um the 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 buyer has such a propor disproportional amount of power and there are so many competitive competitors out there that you, they wind up using a, a very powerful grip to squeeze what they need to squeeze so there are exceptions to be sure uh, but they are few and far between, and I think it's going to take more time and more um, sort of realizations that that as they continue to uh, attract uh, service providers that are that are willing to agree to these types of terms and conditions, they're con- they're going to continue to get mediocre results. And I think when they begin to value uh, supply chain services and logistics services, something more strategic than a commodity. I think perhaps then maybe we'll we'll begin to deal with some of the more um advanced and sophisticated procurement folks. But right now we we deal almost exclusively with folks that are more interested in, in extracting value from the relationship than, than, than creating value in the relationship.
0: Okay, I have to turn to you, Ms. Kay, because a couple of things. You know, first of all, let's talk about the lopsided deals of the past, and Apple was excited, but also that automotive uh, study, industry study that I alluded to, where they're talking about the fact that uh, the fact that is ultimately produced by the auto manufacturers is directly now linked to the satisfaction that the vendors have in terms of the relationship with the buyer or with, 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 with the manufacturer themselves in essence and you know we see supplier pays initiative uh, signed by, by the Obama administration um, the recognition that we have to compress the the, the, the payment uh, times as opposed to what Phil someone in his industry where' you know looking at extending it and transferring the risk I mean there there seems to be all these building blocks in place to uh, I guess uh, respond to uh, to driving uh, a more strategic or relational approach. Uh, yet, as Phil indicated, we're still at the very early stages. I mean, is the writing not clearly on the wall to people? I mean, the bridge example, the supplier pays example, the industry study showing that the, the ultimate product that is delivered to the end consumer by the buying company, whether it be an auto manufacturer or otherwise, it's tied to the satisfaction that vendors have with the relationship. I mean, like, do we have to get hit in the face with a two-by-four?
2: Well, you know, I do think we have to get hit in the face with a two-by-four because sometimes that's what it takes to change. I mean, look at when we have a bad habit. You know, how hard is it to try to to stop smoking? Or if you're addicted to drugs, right? So I think buyers are addicted to, you know, being able to get the short-term win by bringing out the hammer right? And so they don't have the impact until later. Look at Apple GT Advance, right? Uh, Very, very, you know, touted as a strategic deal. um, And, you know, Apple's probably rolling over in their grave because the judge ordered that a lot of the details of that contract come out. You know, GT Advance didn't have all the information. You could say that they you know, signed a deal, and they should have never signed that deal in the first place, but they got in and they said, hey, I'm underwater. And you know what? Apple said, sorry, you know, the, you're not allowed to change the price. And so every day was a printing cash, and they went out of business. And so I think that, you know, if I use an analogy of a river, right, we're to the point where the river has really, you know, the water in the river is, is down, and we're, we're exposing the rocks. So, as you said, getting smacked in the face. GT Advanced going bankrupt, it smacks Apple in the face. You know, and they're a oh. big, powerful company with lots of cash, and they can probably go to another supplier in the short term. But that happens over and over and over again. You have companies like expeditors saying, you know what, take your business. I can't do business with you. You know, we need to have suppliers who are willing, like Phil, to be more transparent with your customers and say, you've pushed too far. This doesn't make sense, right? Because buyers...
0: Okay, now let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. And and, and Phil, I'll go to you hearing what Kate just said. I mean, that, that, that ability to stand up and say, you've pushed too far. I mean, from where does that originate? I mean, and, and, and again, I'll, I'll go to this new generation of, of procurement professional coming into the picture. They know what's wrong. They know what doesn't work. So there will obviously be uh, some pushback potentially from the rank and file. I don't know. But in, within your organization, it, it, does that have to achieve higher up? Like well, it, it seems like for, for any meaningful traction or scalability to be gained, you have to have leadership who is informed and understands the consequences of their action, rather than merely adhering to a contract, you know, the best interest of the, the, the vendors or other stakeholders be damned. I mean, like, where where does that originate, Bill?
1: Yeah, John, I, I think what 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 I'd like to describe to your audience is that, for, I would say the vast majority of the time, the contracts that that I'm dealing with and that my i'm i'm positive my my competitors are dealing with they're not they're not tailor-made or custom-made for for the business at hand or the industry uh, many cases that they're they're sort of generalized contracts that may deal, you know, loosely with transportation or logistics or warehouse and distribution and then being a sort of a, a template they continue to get additional provisions and sections added to them by the let's say general counsel or financial office until you have sort of this quilt of a contract, you know bits and pieces sewn together around a centralized service, right, so what can happen is in the in the transportation space, you can wind up with a contract that might have a a commercial value of let's say five million dollars, okay but the liability exposure and the liability expectation because of the the general terms that have come in, could be fifty million or a hundred million. They're so disproportionate between the commercial benefit versus the risk imposed and and it's it's it becomes this this debate where perhaps the procurement person doesn't really understand logistics or in the in the opposite, the logistics person negotiating doesn't understand the terms of indemnification and liability regimes, so you get stuck in this world where they're like just sign it, everybody else has." And, and it's, a difficult, it's a difficult discussion to have because it's the commercial value versus not, not even a proportional risk, something that's quite, quite out of whack. So the problem is that we have people signing them. So you're, you're stuck in this, you know, I'm going to win on principle, but I'm going to lose on profit kind of a thing. It's, it's quite frustrating at times. But, um, you know, we just, we just need to get another dialogue going out there, another discussion that, that these contracts come with some significant teeth, and we need to make sure that there's proportionality. That's that's okay. really what the, at the crux of the matter. Yeah.
0: Okay. So when you talk about proportionality, is the problem originating with the buyer? Is the problem originating with upper management uh, or, or corporate direction rewarding the wrong motivators? I mean, I remember, Kate, you talked about your years at Microsoft and the rewards for saving money. In other words, you, you actually were rewarded and acknowledged for getting the better of the, the, the vendor. Uh, than you were for collaborating with the vendor to everyone's mutual benefit. I mean, you know, so so is it the buyer's? who have looked at this generally speaking, let's say the older generation of buyers and said, well, that's just the way it is and I'm going to do it. I'm not going to lose my job. And the newer generation is going to come along and say, wait, this doesn't work and you've got to pay attention. And now is the time because we're having these kinds of conversations, which five years ago uh, probably uh, weren't possible, at least to the same degree they are now. I mean, like, where does the origin of this problem has? Is it come into buyer acquiescence of just accepting that's the way it is? Uh, and and management's rewarding the wrong thing? Where where does it start changing?
2: Yeah, well, I think that it it can start changing in a couple of ways. Sometimes, as you said, people have to be smacked in the face, right? But other times people are enlightened. So we are seeing people come um, and and be highly interested in our work at the University of Tennessee about value-based, investment-based, partnership-based types of relationships, looking at something like, you know, supply chain and saying, you know what? That's not just shipping from point A to point B. That's not a commodity. It's a strategic weapon. How can I create value instead of extract value? So you, you're going to start to see, you know, you know, two paths. One is the enlightened people, and one is those who've been smacked in the face because they have an Apple GT kind of a deal who went south and they've been burned and they're going, wow, I need to change. But I think underneath all of that, you've got the new people coming in, right? The younger generation, and it's going to take time because, like it or not, the old generation is the are the ones that are are have the, uh, you know, have the power in the companies today. And yeah, couldn't agree wants,
1: more. Couldn't agree more. gotta
2: let the dinosaurs die. You know, how can we go out and shoot the dinosaurs? <laughs> it's a, probably a better thing, right? So, oh, okay, if, but, if, but
0: but wait, wait a second though. How do we how do is... we
2: educate? or
0: or Us, using your example, Kate sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but using using your example, I mean isn't that gonna deter more people from the younger generation from getting i mean are they gonna hit a point of frustration?
2: um, you know, I think that they're just gonna to go to the companies who have the different types of values, you'll see them want to go and work at the Zappos of the world who have a value creation mentality, right so you're you're not just seeing this in the procurement space you're seeing this this mindset shift across businesses, and that most talented people will shift to the businesses with a pie expansion mentality instead of a you know dog eat dog mentality because that's a funner environment for the new folks and you know what right, if so, you're a supplier so- if you're a supplier, John. You're going to take your best people and go to your best accounts. Why would an A team person want to get stuck on a C team, you know, working with a with a client who is not doesn't value them.
0: All right, so here's an interesting thing, and this may lead because all of a sudden when you were talking, Kate, I thought you know, this is like a good-to-great example from Colin's book. I mean, ultimately, Phil, corporations who do adopt, which you're championing, what Kate is championing, which, you, which we all know to be the right direction, are ultimately going to attract the newest, most innovative talent that ultimately uh, is going to give them a competitive advantage in the marketplace if we are to believe the surveys from the automotive industry saying a supply base that is 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 liquid, well-paid, uh, f- or fairly paid and happy with their buyer supplier relationships because they're part of this process is ultimately gonna, ultimately going to enable the company to deliver the highest quality of products and services. I mean, that in of itself is, is really going to be the key point. That's going to be the competitive advantage or the the the, the 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 tipping point. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, John. I think I think the best way for me to, to describe you know what what you just mentioned is if you if you think about it, I'm also a buyer. I mean, Expeditors is probably one of the largest purchasers of transportation in the world, B- bigger than most of my customers. I'm buying directly from the airlines and directly from the steamship lines. We treat our relationships with those asset-based carriers entirely different than how we're treated by our customers. We t- we treat our, bo- our service providers, the airlines and the steamship lines, very strategically. Uh, our relationships with them are very open and transparent and win-win, because Frankly, we need them, and without without them, you know, we're, we'll, we'll be stuck buying planes and boats, and we don't know how to do that. So we practice it on our side, and we see the benefit of it. We think it actually makes us gives us a strategic advantage in the field, in the competitive arena, because we have very strong carrier partnerships. The guys who put the boat the the cargo on planes and boats. What what that hasn't made it over to me as a as a seller if you will or, or to my customers because they still treat it as how much value can i extract from the relationship by way of longer payment terms shifting more inherent risk greater degrees of exposure while purchasing at a commodity base so there are elements of that in the industry where it's more strategic but it hasn't drifted over into the traditional buyer seller relationship in the logistics world and that's not going to happen until more and more companies realize that when they buy that way they're going to get um a certain amount of resources and those customers that buy more strategically in a more collaborative environment will get the cream of the crop resources and I see that in my I see that every day both in my own situation as well as uh, pursuing business um, you can always tell when you're pursuing a, cust- a potential customer what type of resources they're getting access to with their current provider. So eventually that will begin to take shape, but it's we've got a lot of work to do in that area. Okay, yeah. so
0: you know what, this is the interesting, because I want to move on to the next topic, which is the emergence of e-commerce and technology, obviously, having an impact, and whether or not the the, 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 the power of technology, wearable technology, people wanting the same, uh, buyers wanting the same experience at work that they do at home and buying on the Internet, whether or not that actually uh, hurts or, or, or helps the cause that we're talking about. But But at the end of the day, I mean, Is it still safe to say, and Kate, I'll go back to you, that the the, the success with the Minnesota, and I use that because that's one of your your, your best-known examples, the Minnesota Bridge rebuilding, what you're talking about, Phil, in terms of how you've uh, utilized and you practice what you preach. That's the best way of saying it. I mean, ultimately, is the driver for the overall scalability and massive change that needs to take place, well, there's many different points, including the next generation coming up, is the competitive advantage once it really manifests itself. In other words, when a company is seen as having a clear profitability, gaining market share, gaining strength, offering better products at lower prices or whatever it may be because of the strength of the relationship, I mean, is that the, is that the overall shift that, that, that we're, we're ultimately going to see? Is that the Atlas uh, shrug kind of moment?
2: Yeah, I think so, and and that's one of the reasons why we're really big at case studies, right? So people who um, come and learn about the vested methodology and they implement it, we we really encourage them to submit their case studies and to make those public, because the more you know, the more people realize that win win isn't just a nice thing to say; it's real, right? Um, Is it, going to help what I think of as the cause or the movement. Um so and, – and it is. It's just every day we get more and more people who have gone through our classes and, and they come back and say, wow, I changed the way I worked with that supplier and it made all the difference in the world. I was fair. Right. I was candid. I was transparent. You know, I, I allocated and risk instead of shifted risk. and it And it makes a big difference. So the more we get those case studies – It's just like a a virus that spreads, right? You've read, I'm sure, um, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, right? So we're in the early stages of uh, getting an idea to spread. And the more that people try it, the more they go, wow, this is great. The more that folks like Phil come out and say, you know what, I'm a buyer and a supplier, and this is how I do work, and this is why we have a competitive advantage in the industry, because I'm a buyer and I believe in this. Right, and this is how we gain our competitive advantage. So I I think you'll see it. It's just going to take time because, as you mentioned, you know, and as as Hanfield's mentioned, you know, there's kind of the old school mentality and the new school mentality. And like it or not, the old school mentality has the the power jobs in the companies today. And so maybe the dinosaurs have to die or maybe we need to, you know, maybe we need to educate them, maybe we need to to shoot them off. I don't know.
0: Come on meteor anyway okay phil let me let me turn this question to you. we're going to run a little bit of overtime if that's okay technology i mean we're we're hearing the the lines between b to C and b uh, really disappearing. The buyers are saying why why can't I have the same experience at work that I have at home in terms of ease of use? We see all these platforms cloud based solutions What used to take uh years and and, and, uh, millions upon millions of dollars to implement. Now we have uh, applications and solutions that can be implemented within a matter of of weeks, if not days, producing results. Do these things help to facilitate uh, a a relationship-based approach to procurement, or does technology undermine it?
1: Well, technology is a a huge game changer for this industry. I, I would say, you know, when people talk about the same experience they have in their personal life as they do in their professional life, and again referring to my industry, it's because when when you know when I shop for Christmas or I shop for the holidays, I can quickly find out where is my stuff and when will it be delivered to me. Two simple questions, two very important things I want to know. But when you're in the business world and you have all the complexities of volumes and and, and units and colors, sizes, uh, governments, airlines, ocean, and you try to answer those two questions in the same manner. Very simple questions, incredibly complex to answer. But technology is beginning to provide, if you will, visibility to the answer to those questions, but it's still a long way off because of the sort of disparate nature of the supply chain. There's, there there, really is no sort of single uh, window into where's my stuff and when will it be here. There are There are bits and pieces that technology can bolt together, but Um, it's still not there. Now, there are some great platforms out there, and it's having a dramatic effect, and I'm sure we're going to get there, given the pace of technology and the change that comes with that. But I think what's going to really wind up happening is, with technology and sort of this, the, the move towards a single platform of visibility, what comes with that is also a single source of data. And that data will be one version of the truth. And from that, procurement groups will have better information regarding volumes, uh, commodities, types of volumes, trends and patterns in those volumes, spend. And so when they begin to put things out to bid and when they begin to put things out for review, they'll have much more reliable information uh, regarding service and volumes and and, and spend. Right now it's a bit of a, uh, it's more art than science right now when bids go out. So I think technology will have a dramatic impact, but again, the, the gap between the simplicity of me buying something online and having it delivered to my home versus managing sort of a complex, disparate global supply chain is, a, is almost a quantum leap. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: and so, hearing what Phil had to say, Kate, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think um, technology is going to do um, some great things as well as potentially some not so great things. Let me explain. So I do think it will help compare apples to apples, right? So it's going to streamline how we work. It's the data point. The one version of the truth is absolutely critical. Um, We have to remember that we need to use data um, in a positive way and not, you know, point point and use that to, to make our... Um, case and not be transparent with a supplier. So the more we can use that as one one version of the truth, as Phil said, is great. But I fear here's my negative thing about about um, technology. I fear that just because we have technology and we can use it, it will further over commoditize. So instead of buying, you know, freight optimi- optimization or supply chain optimization, we buy point A to point B. So we optimize the commodity and we leave money on the table because we haven't solved the bigger picture. And so the more technology enables us to have, you know, auctions, reverse auctions, that's actually bad if you have a strategic category. You know, I go back to, I'll I'll point to McDonald's, right? Is beef a commodity or is it a strategic weapon? It's a strategic weapon. So if we start to see freight, and logistics and warehousing as a as a commodity, I think we lose the ability to create value from that category. Um, so just because we have technology, we need to use it in the right way um, versus use as a way to further
0: commoditize.
1: Yeah, I so could agree words, more. That, that technology edged is a double-edged sword, yeah.
0: We're thinking the same there, Phil. (laughs) So it is a two-edged sword. It can be good, but bad, depending on how it's wielded. All right, let me ask you this then, and I'll start with UK and then go to Phil. Uh, Public versus private sector. Uh, You know, there's always been this traditional, and and we talked about this in Virginia in November, there's always been this view that one is different than the other, but one would think, that in the public sector, which is has to focus more on other factors like industrial regionalized benefits or economic benefits, social responsibility, and all of these elements to it, that it would be more conducive to the kind of relationship that you and that Phil are talking about uh, because there is more opportunity for that. Is that true or is that a fallacy? Is there more <laughs> opportunity in the private sector then? Yeah, I
2: would actually say there is more, more opportunity in the public sector because I think, traditionally it is not as efficient. Um, However, it is a bigger mindset change than in the commercial sector. So when your procurement or contracting officer can get sued for using best value, it's probably not going to be a driver of change, right? They don't want to try best value techniques because it's risky. In the commercial sector, it's not as risky. In the commercial sector, we have an enemy called bonuses for just price variance. So until management says it's stupid to have a buyer being rewarded on price reduction, you're probably not going to see change. Okay,
0: let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. One of the things things in the public sector that was very interesting that I I discovered in Virginia was the fact is that they do have a clause that gives the buyer... Uh, power to be able to make best value decisions without consequences, uh, and I'm not I'm not saying that's in every state to the same degree. And I, I guess what I'm looking at here is is that when you look at uh, is it the fact that people don't want to take the risk to step outside of the box to look at that kind of legislative? Is it just sort of accepted as this is the way it is and we can't change? Just like on the other side, filled with the private sector industry or the commercial industry, as Kate calls it. I mean, these incentives are created by people within the organization. I mean, they can be changed by people within the organization, granted a lot easier perhaps than widespread legislative change, but nonetheless both originate with people's views uh, in terms of, I don't know, protecting themselves, belt and suspenders mindset. Uh, in the public sector, everybody has a right to, to business, which I don't always think is, 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 is should be the case. But, I mean, these are all, for lack of a better better term, People made issues, aren't they?
2: yeah, you know you nailed it, and that's one of my uh things that when I teach class, we always end with a barriers discussion what are these what are the barriers that prevent you from doing the things that Hanfield says that we teach tested um and they're all man made things, obstacles that are in your head, and yes, there may be a quote policy. We can't do that. There's a policy. Well, those policies are are made by people. So I don't see any real obstacles. I see a mindset obstacle, um, and and this is why I go back. Maybe dinosaurs just need to die, right? So Hanfield spot on. Hanfield spot on. There is a divide, and the cool thing is, years ago, you weren't seeing this. Today, it is. You know, it is coming to the forefront because you're seeing these tensions. In buyer-supplier relationships, uh, you know the lawsuit. Bet- you know the, the the lawsuit between Apple and GT Advanced. Their bankruptcy in Europe. You've got all kinds of, you know, um, companies that are um, really being exposed that they've had bad procurement practices, um, muscular practices that have, you know, really harmed the. supply base. Obama's payment initiative, right? When the government has to step in and say, hey, let's Maybe think about being more fair how we pay our suppliers. That's probably a sign that we've gone a little too
0: far.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: Phil. Phil, would you concur with that? I mean, is 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 it is it is it is this are these the factors that are in change? I mean, are we going to enter in? Gardner called uh, made a term uh, postmodern ERP, referring to the fact is, is that the old ERP app platforms. Never really delivered on their promise, and now we're in a new era. And so, of course, cloud-based solutions on this. I mean, are we going to have a similar postmodern uh, uh, contract or TNC era here? I mean, <laughs> is, is, is that something that's going to happen?
1: I, th- I think what the, the two things that I find interesting and both concerning about the, sort of this underlying trend going on is as we as the as the public sector, the government begins to source more and more privately. What they've done is, is if you are a direct contractor with the government, they've taken their sort of the, the governmental policies, social engineering policies, other types of governmental policies, and they you, you accept them as is. And not only that, but within those contracts, they have passed through uh, passed through uh, rules that trickle down right to all their to all their suppliers. So the number of people doing business with the government is growing at a rapid pace, and through sort of osmosis public terms are now becoming integral parts of commercial private contracts. And so oh, if I'm well, you know a second or third tier provider, I'm still getting exposed to governmental procurement terms, which is which is getting right. kind of tricky, so
0: well listen Phil I know you've got to jump off the line and thank you for staying overtime with us Kate just to close with you one question and and again uh Phil Coglin uh, you president global geographies and operations expeditors international and certainly one of uh, one of the leaders in terms of the uh, uh, hoping to facilitate this change that's necessary thank you for joining us
1: Thank you so much and have a wonderful day
0: Thank you and and Kate I, in in terms of the last comment with you and I usually like to do this uh these are the three questions that, that, that again, I had indicated at the top of the show that I found to be most important. What other question would you add to this in terms of 2015?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I don't know that I would add a question. I think I would add a challenge that people have to start thinking about the total cost of what they're doing and looking at value uh, and how they're going to – create value versus simply exchange or extract value from their partners. So my question is, are you, listeners, extracting value, exchanging value, or creating value? And maybe it's time to think about your supply base and ask which suppliers need to fall in which ones of those categories.
0: Interesting, as always, Kate, interesting perspective in in the context of these things. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Excellent. Well, thanks for having us.
0: Well, I'll look forward to the next time we can share the airways. I'm sure we'll have many discussions in 2015. And, of course, to you listeners, thank you for joining us and uh, sharing your time. Again, this series of what we call Procurement Unplugged will continue with uh, discussion. The next one scheduled up is with Buyer's Meeting Point's Kelly Barner and uh, Jeanette Jones, who teamed up to author a book called Supply Market Intelligence for Procurement Professionals. And in the relationship or, or in the staying consistent with the theme that we have, uh, we're going to review this book and talk about this book in the context of, again, these three questions. Until we come at you over these virtual airways again, as always, I remain your host, John Hansen. Have a good week. Bye for now.